0: But this love has implications. This love has a shape and a life. And what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is he's painting a picture of what God's love looks like. And each week there's been a a huge statement by Paul. In the first week we looked at how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then last week we saw that God loves us in all things and this week we read that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And last week we looked at how God, God and his love meet our five deepest needs relationally. And this week we look at how God answers our five biggest questions. We all come with questions. We all have questions about our lives. And, and Paul is answering five really foundational questions of how we relate to God. And I wonder which one of these is going to be particularly relevant to you. We'll all have different questions, we'll all have different emphases, and can I just encourage us all to be listening for what God is particularly saying to you this morning. Well, firstly, there's the, there's the question of protection, the question of protection, In verse 31, Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? All sorts of things, all sorts of people might be against you and me. And we can probably list our foes much easier than we can fight them. Who is on my side? Well, God is for you. He was for you on the cross, and he is for you now. Whoever or whatever is coming against you, God is on the sidelines cheering you on this very moment. His loyalty to you doesn't rise and fall on your performance and the powers of hell are no match for God. God is for you. And secondly, there's the question of provision. In verse 32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Um, We worry, don't we? We worry about pensions and parking tickets, about paying for our family's needs. We worry that fat-free yogurt will in fact not be fat-free. Will we have enough, ultimately? Will we have enough? But there we see that God did not spare his only son. The one who was most valuable to him was the price he paid for you and me. And Jesus didn't didn't suffer the, the shame of Calvary to not see you and me through to the end. He doesn't set you up to fail. The very passion that took Jesus Christ to the cross will sustain you through your life and through your death. But God's provision isn't for us to live some kind of middle-class lifestyle, but to live a life that looks like Jesus, to be more like him. And God provides. And thirdly, there's the question of prosecution. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. I wonder if you saw this um, the other day. Chris Pratt from the Jurassic Park franchise of films was accepting the MTV Generation Award. And his advice to the youth of today was this. Nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you are perfect just the way you are, but you are not. You are imperfect. Words of comfort and joy. But we're desperate to believe this lie, aren't we? We're desperate to believe the lie that we are fine the way that we are. But we know that it's just that, it's a lie. We deserve to be charged. The big things in our lives, the small things in our lives. And yet there's the the fourth question, the question of punishment. And we see the answer there. You'll see there in verse 34, Paul writes, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is for you. He is your lawyer, if you like. And he's not appealing to God's mercy. He's appealing to God's justice. Because a price needs to be paid and Jesus has already paid the price. And so if we're believing in Jesus, Jesus is there before God demanding that justice is done, that the price is already paid, that he has suffered the condemnation, he has suffered the punishment. So there's no need for the payment to be made twice. This life is not about you and me being a good Christian. The gospel is not what you do for God, it's what God has done for you. Let's not even make our lives about how much We love God. Make it about God's overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love for you. It is mercy all immense and free. We are not working for love, but working from a place of love. And so we put our faith, whatever little faith we may feel that we have, in the one who is faithful to us a love which takes hold of us and will not let us go. And then finally, the fifth question, we have the question of permanence. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And there it is. There's the question that deep down we all really want to know the answer to. How long will God's love endure? How long will it last We may have experienced love that fades, that loses patience. Even I like myself when I'm ready to tackle world hunger and when I'm kind and when I'm polite. But what about when I'm grumpy? What about when I'm tired and I'm rude and I'm self centered? In verse 35 there we see, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword. Anything that you can do, anything that can happen to you, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. And maybe this morning, you're in the midst of a storm and it feels all too much. And you're thinking, the price is too high. The price that I have to pay is too high. But there is no edge to grace. If you think you've fallen from grace, it's not grace that you've fallen from. There's no guilt in life, there's no fear in death. And so Paul gives us this logic of love. He's appealing to our heads, he's appealing to our hearts, and he's sort of banging us over the head with this reality of God's love for us. Why? Well, we also have an enemy. We have an accuser who is persistent. And in verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44, a time of Israel's desperation. It's basically saying that we're sitting ducks, this place of despair. But in verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors, super conquerors. Is Paul getting a little carried away with superlatives here? I know it's quite difficult for us at the moment to imagine a sort of anyone in the news who exaggerates a bit. But Paul is making lots of, of grand statements here. And is he just going a bit over the top? No, he's not being over the top at all. In fact, he hasn't been over the top at all in this passage. How can we be more than conquerors? I have some Nike shoes. I don't know whether it's Nike or Nike in this country tomato, tomato, Um, but I have some Nike shoes that are falling apart. And that Greek word, Nike, means conqueror. But Paul is saying here, uh, more than conquerors, we are more than conquerors. He's saying, hyponikeo. And and Jesus is the one who, in verse 34, we see he died more than that, rose to life, and is at the right hand of God. And Jesus used what seemed to be the very worst event in human history. And used it for our good. What was intended for harm, and he threw it straight back in the enemy's face. And the whole point of this passage is that if we are in Christ, what is true of Jesus is true of us. And that God works in all things. So in God's love, nothing is wasted. But everything is used for your good and for God's glory. When Paul writes, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword. It's basically an autobiography of Paul's experiences. He was arrested and beaten in Jerusalem. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He was shipwrecked off Malta and he was under house arrest in Rome. And in time he will be executed. Yet he says he is more than a conqueror. He harnesses the the enemy's schemes and uses them to prepare himself for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so last week he says, I consider, and this week he says, um, last week he said, I consider the present suffering as nothing compared to the glory coming. And this week he ends the passage by saying in verse 38, I am convinced I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm aware that in the past three weeks I've been speaking a lot about what God does inside of each one of us. And that's because this is where it all begins. It begins with accepting and experiencing the love of God so powerfully for ourselves that we see a purpose that is beyond ourselves, a purpose to let others experience that they are loved by God too. And this love, if you are to really take hold of it, it will give you conviction And it will give you courage. Courage and boldness to be more than a conqueror. Boldness to approach God with confidence. And boldness to approach the world. And so the confidence that I have in my life and my uh, conviction and my courage to share this with the world. It doesn't rise and fall on any any circumstances or situations. It doesn't rise and fall on whether I'm celebrating or whether I'm suffering. It doesn't even rise and fall on how much I love God. It rests in one thing and one person alone. And you can't take him away from me. For I am convinced that nothing will separate me from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen.